Now, if that's the case, if we've been traveling from the altar, brazen altar, to the mercy seat through the book of Revelation, is it possible that that John is depicting um, a chronometer? Because remember, it's pointing east. What what is the significance of east and west when it comes to time? The sun rises in the right. east and sets in the west. Yeah. So beginning of the day, end of the day, right. beginning of history, end of history. Yeah. So if you can imagine the sun as being a the hand on on a chronometer, right? And tick, 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 and it's starting way out there. Yeah. You know, it's starting in the courtyard, but now uh, tick, 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 it's over, it's over the holy place, right? And and as it's moving, when it gets down toward evening, now it is over. It is directly, you know, it is uh-huh. pointing at the Holy of Holies. Uh-huh. Okay, so I, I would suggest that the reason this, one of the reasons that this pattern is so important. Why did it have to face east? Why did it have to be a long rectangle? Why did there have to be space on either side, north and south of it, but not toward the back of it? Because on the back end of it, on the west it's end, over. history's over. <laughs> it's That's over. the end of history. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Welcome, everyone, to the Faith Recovery Podcast. We're trying to recover faith yeah. by recovering the faith. I'm Kent. I'm Nathan. And we're in a series called According to Scripture. We're going back to the Old Testament. We've been, I don't know, maybe 11 or 12 episodes now. Yeah. And this one is called According to the Pattern mm. about the tabernacle. And we'll tell you what that is. Ooh, the tabernacle was designed as a chronometer of sorts. For God's plan with humankind, God gives Moses exacting design schematics for mm. the tabernacle, which he is warned to follow without deviation. Yes. With the building of the first and second temples, this basic design is retained with a few elaborations. At the end of the Bible, we find this pattern that we find that this pattern reveals God's plan with humankind. So today That's we're going, we're, di- we're diving deep. We're going to be oh my in goodness. Exodus. We're going to be all the way up forward in Revelation. Yeah. Uh, so Nathan, tell us, um, remind us about the tabernacle, what it is, why it came about, at mm. what point in history it came about. Yeah. Okay. So Moses is on the mountain where he's getting the law. So it's just right there at the beginning of Israel's history as a nation. They've been set free from Egypt. They've gone out. They've met with God at Sinai. They got the Ten Commandment law, and right after that, God is teaching them how to relate to Him, and uh, so He gives Moses a pattern for this um, house of worship, this temple. It's a tent, but um, it's supposed to represent God's presence on earth, and and it has this very specific shape to it. You know, I I don't Didn't know. They say that God dwells in the tabernacle. Like yeah. it represents God's <clears throat> presence because it's His house. Right, yeah, and, and we mentioned, I guess it was last time, about this person, the presence, right? It's not it's not God's presence as some sort of projection of him, but God's presence as a person who is God, who lives in this, in this tent mm-hmm. among, you know, within Israel. And so um, most of the descriptions of the, um, the tabernacle and its uh, compartments and its furnishings they begin from the inside out, so I'll do the same. So you have a, an a innermost chamber that just contains the Ark of the Covenant, which then takes on this role as a throne, uh, an S seat, a judgment seat that has these depictions of these two angelic beings that are, you know, have their wings that are covering this seat. 
Mm -hmm. Um, And this is roughly a square or cube chamber. Mm -hmm. Same width, same That's God's throne. Yes, it's one of them. It's one of them. Um, And then you go from that chamber, so... And I don't remember the exact width of the tabernacle. Uh, we'll get to a description of the temple, which follows the same shape and furnishings, but as you said in the synopsis, elaborations on the theme. Then you come out into a rectangular compartment that is, um, it's got three pieces of furnishing, three or two and a half, if you will. Um, there's, you would pass an altar of incense on your way from that innermost compartment to that next compartment out and that okay that's a In, there's a hallway of sorts between the yeah two. doorway a, a well a screen uh-huh. a veil and then right right at that veil is this altar of incense okay. so and the purpose of that was you know when the high priest would go in once a year to that innermost chamber and sprinkle the blood of a bull um before he went in that the the visible, you know, the presence of God, the mercy seat, and all that had to be kind of covered in smoke so that there was no, you know, even as he's going through this veil and exposing this innermost piece of furnishing, this this uh, mercy seat is what it came to, comes to be called, um, that, it ought, that that chamber is supposed to be filled with this incense. And so this altar of, of uh, incense is burning, and that's on a, that fire is always there. Incense is being offered all the time on it, so that that's always going up as the prayers of God's people or whatever before the mercy seat. And then you would have, um, I suppose, on your right would be a table. If you're coming out that, of the well, table. on your right would be a lampstand. Yeah, if you're coming out of that innermost chamber. So on the south side, you're headed east. Um, <clears throat> so if you're headed east, south's on your right, and on your right is the lampstand. So that's this stylized you know, menorah. Mm -hmm. And then on your left is a table with these loaves of of bread for the presence. Um, And then you would leave that, go out into the courtyard, the courtyard area. Then you could go around to the side of this, of this building, you know, so the courtyard would have, uh, that's where all the blood and guts were, right? So there's this brazen altar where they're actually sacrificing animals. And then there's a laver, which is, you know, a, a basin to wash in. Um, and this courtyard though, it went around on both sides. So this, there's a rectangle, a small rectangle inside of a large rectangle. And the small rectangle is, is centered, um, north and south so that there's space on either side, north and south, but there's no space at the West. It's up against the West side. Okay, I'm I'm getting a little bit lost on yeah. the rectangles. Okay, yeah. so we've got what, what what did you just say about the this this courtyard? And describe that again for yeah. me. Yeah. Oh, the courtyard is a larger rectangle. So let's just say it's a and I can't remember the exact dimensions of the of the tabernacle itself, but let's just say it's 100 yards from one side to another. I guess it says uh it's half that. It's 100 cubits long and 50 cubits wide and a cubit is about a half a yard okay okay so 150 yards no wait 50 yards long 150 feet right by um 25 yards wide mm-hmm. is how big is how big the courtyard would be uh-huh. and does the courtyard go all the way around the innermost chamber it does yeah, yeah it's and it's a it was a big curtain mm-hmm. um and then and then the it that that 
place, the actual tabernacle itself is seated, is set inside the courtyard, and it's another rectangle, uh, and it is, but it's narrower and shorter, so it's, you know, it's a smaller rectangle, and, and it's pushed back against the west wall, but uh-huh. centered north and south. West wall, that comes up later, no? What, yes, yeah, where the orientation of it is, uh-huh. okay, and so... Um, and, and if you're lost, that's okay, because that's what the Bible does to you. <laughs> you know, I don't know how many times I've read these descriptions of the tabernacle or the temple and been like, couldn't you have just drawn a picture? Wouldn't it have been easy? In our study Bibles, we do have pictures of these yeah, things. Yeah, so go right. to your study Bible people and you'll find right. them. Yeah. yeah, but um, God gives these very lengthy verbal descriptions of this thing. Um, which I don't know if it was common in the ancient areas. That's how you design something or what. And that was, you know, somebody didn't have, people didn't have problems with that. It just seems like draw a picture. But at any rate, it is a picture in that it's a, a particular shape, a schematic, even though it's, it's communicated in words. And so, uh, multiple times through the book of Exodus, um, God cautions Moses. He says, then have them make a sanctuary for me, Exodus 25, 8. And I will dwell among them, make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So there's a, a pattern, um, a shape that God is insisting that this thing be, um, that the, the configuration of the furnishings, that the um, compartments, that their relative dimensions, that they have to follow that. Mm-hmm. Um and so that's, and then he's reminded again in Exodus 27. Anyway. <clears throat> is this pattern concept, is that, this is reminding me of the descriptions to Noah on how to build the ark. Right, yeah. Similar, similar mm-hmm. concept there where God's saying, build it exactly like this, and he yeah. tells them exactly how to build it. Yeah. Is that just because, is that just a cultural artifact? Like here's how, this is, like you said, this is how... Um, projects were described in the ancient Near Eastern world, or is there something about God here? Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, the author of the Hebrew letter would say there's something about God, mm-hmm. that it's at least signifying a particular shape of things spiritually when it comes to relating to God. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he would suggest, that the author of Hebrews would suggest that that innermost compartment represents the, the immediate presence of God. Um, whereas the, um, the, that secondary compartment, and we'll talk about what that might represent. He doesn't give us super clarity on that. He suggests some things, but, um, at any rate, we will, we will discuss that. Okay. Uh, one thing I want to point out is that in Exodus 27, 12 through 16, that there's a description of this courtyard. And what I want us to notice in this is that, um, that it opens to the East. That's really kind of, I could read all that, but. Uh, if you want to look it up, Exodus 27, and he describes that this thing, <clears throat> it's pointing east. So if you were standing in that courtyard um, facing the tabernacle, east would be to your back. Um, and so the sun's coming up that way and, and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that becomes important later. Okay. Um, now, then Solomon goes and, and he builds this temple, right? So God is settled in Jerusalem for David's sake. Uh, he doesn't seem to be super enthusiastic when David's like, oh, let me build you a house, God. And God's like, did I ever ask for a house? You know, uh-huh. I was, like, I've been perfectly happy just moving around in this tent, you know. Uh-huh. They still had the tent in David's yeah. day. Right. Yeah. And uh, and yet, I think 
this God, tabernacle that's described in, in Exodus. Right, yeah. They still had that in David's day. Right, name. yeah. And I think God really kind of acquiesces to David. He wants to, he's kind of building David's legacy. And he says, your son's going to build me a house. Um, and he's going to do it in, in your town, say in your capital city. So I, I think that God is, he's bringing, he's, he's, uh, now he's, he's planned this from the beginning of time, but remember he's look, he's living in eternity. So if you can imagine, you know, everything, all of history laid out before you like a map, you know, and you have instant access to every point along that timeline, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like you have to, you're going along and trying and deciding things as they come up. Right. Um, and so if someone prays a prayer in 2023, you're free to answer that in BC 580. Right. <laughs> like, gotcha. Boom. Your great, 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 great grandmother now met somebody who later will bring you that. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's like he's free to do that. Um, and I think that's what people miss. Like, imagine just imagine, and it shouldn't be that hard for us to imagine, just being above, imagine, because time is is enmeshed with space. And we can imagine having the kind of vista over space, right? If you, let's say you could look out and you look out at the heavens and you see a bunch of stars, right? And you have some sort of immediate warp drive kind of a thing, and you can just get to each star, bat, 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 like that, right? Because you're looking at a panorama of it, it's not hard to think, you could just grab a, a you know, one thing of, of a whole array that you're looking at. Yeah. Now God sees time like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So <laughs> uh, as God is, so we could say God made Jerusalem his capital for David's sake. We can also say Jerusalem is the eternal capital, you know, <laughs> that there's something about uh, because of David, but it's not like God's like, well, let's tack this onto the plan. You know, it's just that these people in history um, have, were faithful in, to whatever degree, and God included them, and so that's a part of it. But all that to say, Solomon, for David's sake, builds a temple for God, and the, and he elaborates on it. It still has the same shape; it has the same essential elements. But in Solomon's temple, now this the brazen altar, which was you know relatively small, let's say it was a cubit wide, a cubit deep, and two cubits high, now becomes you know, this massive platform with big, you know, concrete steps going up to a big bronze furnace almost with these four horns on it. And um, and now this fire's burning out of this thing. You know, you can imagine kind of this this site. This right? is and this is this is Solomon's elaboration right on the Exodus uh, descriptions. Right, yeah. Okay. So now this tabernacle, it still it still has the same roughly like the innermost chamber is still a cube. Uh, it's still got that Ark of the Covenant in there, except now there's these big, huge cherubim that are standing over it, right? Mm-hmm. That are filling the whole room with their wings, and um, now it's you know this the the building isn't is no longer uh, out of this curtain material, but now it's gold uh, overlaid on top of cedar wood and so there's there's a lot of elaborations uh another elaboration that i would point out and i'm really looking a lar- largely at uh second chronicles three and four just because it gives a bit more detail but i and i and i want to describe this because it's going to come up later okay so i want you to imagine that there's this big altar this uh, so there, remember that there that god has two thrones at the tabernacle or at the temple 
the one is is his kind of judgment throne. So I don't know if you remember, like in the New Testament, when uh, Jesus is on trial and Pilate comes out to a place called the pavement to no. make a decision. Okay. Right. Uh, and and so that this wasn't this was common. Uh, if in Esther, I think it is that you know Ahasuerus comes out to his his outer uh, courtyard, okay. kind of an area where he would meet with society, with humanity or whatever with the with the commoners that he would render judgment on on matters okay okay and then there was an innermost chamber where that would be like you know esther wasn't allowed to go in no there even his wife there. right if she went in without without being invited she could be executed right, right. so she took a big risk when she right did that. yeah so going into that innermost chamber is is serious stuff right that's the holy of holies as it's called in scripture um so god Really, it, you know, this is this is a, a royal um, grounds, right? Uh, just the whole facility, and and so God is is in His judgment is out there in this fire, and these animals are being sacrificed. There's blood, and 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 right across from this, what might be conceived of, what, what Ezekiel conceives of as God's very presence, His throne. You know, remember God's a consuming fire. And so God is this fire burning on this this uh, altar, and so as you're throwing these animals, this is what you're supposed to conceive of: that this is a God of of holiness and wrath, and it's and He's consuming things, okay, that is being burned up, right? When we when, when we when we come when we say at least some Christians will commonly say God is a consuming fire, right? That is whether they realize it or not, an allusion yeah. to the fire burning. In the uh, in the courtyard, right, uh, the altar, yeah, that's burning up the animals, right. And so when you get to Ezekiel, this altar is now portable. It's on these wheels. These you know uh, heavenly beings are, are hauling it around, and and in so the there's a fire. Yeah, in Ezekiel one, there's this vision of this brazen altar, but it's on these wheels uh, and being held aloft by these these beings and. Um, but the fire in the middle is is God Almighty, right? He is the, is His very presence, and so this is His altar. I mean, this is His altar; it's His throne. Okay, altar and throne are the same. Um, and across from this throne is what uh, what is called the sea. Okay, the sea, S E A. Yeah, okay. because it was previously it was a labor, so you just had this little bird bath, uh-huh. right? Now it's a big swimming pool. Right. It's this, uh, you know, it's uh, what is it, 20 cubits or uh, it's 10 cubits in diameter. So um, what is that? 15 feet. So you have a 15 foot basin that, you know, the walls, it's all made of bronze. The walls of, of this and, and the thickness are like six inches thick. And uh, so you have a, a massive vessel full of water okay. across from this throne or this, you know, this altar. That represents God's presence and His holiness, His wrath. And this this is actually something Solomon built in his temple. He did right across from the altar is this pool. Yes. Okay. Right, and and that all becomes important um, because when we get to Revelation, so we've made a quick trip. It it we take it's taken us a minute to get there, right? Um, and I hope everyone's hung out with us, and uh, but. When we get to Revelation, and I, what what might not jump out to most people, or maybe maybe it has, um, is that Revelation depicts this temple in heaven, 
And the author of Hebrews seems to suggest, yeah, the reason, the reason that God was so intent to tell Moses, make it according to the pattern, is because of a really platonic thought that everything on earth has a correspondent perfection mm-hmm. in the heavens, mm-hmm. right? And uh, the Hebrew author, he's, he's obviously familiar with Philo, who was a North African Jew who kind of married Platonic philosophy with the Jewish scriptures because he picks the same components from the Bible to comment on, many of them. Like, it, it's hard to, to imagine or to uh, reverse engineer how the author of the Hebrew letter came up with the particular um, Old Testament themes, motifs that he uses until you look at Philo and realize he chose many of the same ones. Okay, now Philo is looking at it through a lens of Plato. The author of Hebrews is, is as what seem, who is seemingly an Alexandrian Jew, a North African Jew, like Philo was, is, is saying, no, that's not, it's not Plato, you know, but there is a heaven. We understand mm-hmm. there is a heaven. Mm-hmm. You know, even the Hebrews understood that. So it's not this realm of, of ideals. ideals. Yep. It is a realm of God, and God dwells in perfection. And the tabernacle slash temple were designed to represent the perfect uh, presence of God, worship of God that's going on in heaven. Okay, that so it is a it's a copy of the eternal truth. Ezekiel sees this temple in heaven, this kind of more even more grand, elaborate temple. Okay, now I, I don't know to what degree all of that is literal. Okay. But it does seem to me that as the revela- author of Revelation uh, is, is having these visions that begin in chapter 4, right, that, that there's this um, depiction of God um, at his altar. And so, okay, where am I? I'm in Hebrews. Uh, So Revelation 4, right? After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow shone like an emerald and circled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white, had crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Now that's obviously an allusion to Sinai, right? In front of the throne were seven lamps blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. And also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Okay, so that indicates to us we're talking about the outer throne, the pavement, right, in the the courtyard. Right, exactly. And so... Did you say that's the throne of judgment? It is, yeah. So there's this... You know, I mean, and God is appearing in all of this kind of fearful, uh, you know, like he did on Sinai, Mm -hmm. lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, you know, um, that he's there in his holiness um, and uh, in his presence. And in front of him is this sea of glass. Now, the sea 
represents really um, throughout in Revelation and in apocalyptic literature, it, it represents the realm underneath the authority. You know, uh, it is the human. So if you can imagine a, a uh, you know, a bunch of humans all together in one place, you know, they're, they're kind of moving around like waves as they're, you know, as they individually are moving, that there's this, they're depicted, humankind as a mass is, is kind of depicted as a sea. Uh, and so this sea is being clear as glass, you know, like a sea of glass clear as crystal. It's really depicting that God's reign has no um, vacillations, that there's not some sort of a, rebellion that God is sovereign and everything he does you know he is is planned it's under him entirely um but yes I, I think that the image in heaven in revelation opens there outside that uh that tabernacle or the temple right there in the courtyard and so as um John or you know whoever's written this is is brought up to the presence of God, but it's the presence of God at this judgment throne, okay? Mm -hmm. And this is God who rules over the nations, all humans, okay? This is God the creator, mm -hmm. right? And that's where he's he's at, okay? And the reason I say that is because that this, it says, in the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes front and back, the first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face of a man. And the fourth was that of a flying eagle. Now, when you see the number four, or you see four beings arranged uh, in these quadrants. We're discussing the earth or the created realm. You know, that there's this, um, each of these four were the principal um, astro astrological sign governing a section of the heavens so you have 12 astrological signs okay um and each of those had a principle so leo taurus um i don't remember who the rest of them were but at any rate you know so each of them has this this principle um element as as they're looking out so all that to say is is that this is the god over the universe okay god over creation um, and, and so he is there and he's being worshiped as he ought to be. So, um, there's that. Now, okay. as we move through the book, a lot of things happen around this throne. And by the way, the uh, revelation is divided really into two major lobes, three, if you want to be technical, the first lobe is the first 11 chapters. Uh, as you go through that, the biblical allusions in those 11 chapters are too much to keep up with. I would say it's at least two allusions per verse on average. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it's too much. Mm -hmm. Like, you really have to be marinated in the Old Testament. You basically have to be an Old Testament scholar, maybe an Old Testament scribe, mm -hmm. to even begin to grasp how many and how they're woven together from multiple sources throughout the Old Testament. Um and, I mean, the structure and everything of the book, I, I, it's insane. Like, whoever wrote this is a super genius or inspired, you know. Um, they don't seem to be a super genius just because their Greek isn't very good, according to most scholars. Um, so that would leave only one other option. At any rate, uh, when we open in chapter um, 8, right, that now we are um, 
In 8-3, you want to read that, 3 through 6. Yeah. Another angel, who had a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer, with the prayers of all God's people, on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Mm, wow. Hardcore. So where are we now, do you not, think? Are you saying we're still at the altar? No, um, we're not. Well, we are at an altar, but we're not at the same altar. Remember, the, the altar where the animals were sacrificed is, was bronze. This is, What's this one? This is uh, where the smoke is rising. Yes. This is that little table just outside the uh, inner court, the right. inner chamber. Right. What did you call that table again? The That's table. the altar of incense. Altar of incense. Right. And now when he says he stood at the altar, we're, not, we're talking about the altar of incense. Right. And the reason is because the, the, the one that was where you sacrifice the animals was made of bronze. It's a brazen altar. Even in Ezekiel, it's brazen... Um, but here, this is the golden altar. The it's altar of the incense was made of gold. Everything inside the temple was gold. Right. We and moved so, inside. Right. So now we, the, as the book is, as we're progressing through this vision of heaven, the book is taking us through the temple, through the architecture of the temple. So we went from out there in front, right? There's all this fire and blood and yeah, you know, stuff's going on, right? Um, and now there's this next compartment. Now an angel is standing at this altar of incense and he's worshiping, he's filling, you know, he's offering this, but also the wrath of God. And, and I think that this has to do with God's wrath specifically over injustices suffered by redeemed people. Okay. So there's, there's an association between the prayers of God's people and this, um, you know, these coals being flung to the earth. Right. Mm. So as this book is written to comfort God's people who are under persecution. So there's this idea that, you know, hey, God's prayers are coming up before you, uh, before God. I mean, your prayers are coming up before God and um, and they're having an effect uh, mm. that and God will is raining down. God will vindicate you. Right. Uh, Paul says, do good to those, you know, who hurt you and, and bless those who curse you and you will dump coals of fire in their head. <laughs> well, where are those coals coming from? Here they are. Right. Um, and so there's this this vindication that comes from God because of this. All right. So we've moved there. And then in Revelation 11, we're still there um, where we get these two witnesses. Now, uh, John's given a, a rod to measure the temple. Right. But he's only supposed to measure the inner part. It's a, you know, go and measure the temple, the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the nations, the Gentiles. Whoa, what? What's happening here? They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Now, this isn't a literal 42 months, right? This is a prescribed duration, this 42 months, 1260 days, it comes up in Daniel, time, times, and half, time, times, and half a time. You know, the, this length of time is, is very specific um, in apocalyptic literature, okay? But what we need to understand, and, and I don't think it's literal, I don't think we need to really worry so much about counting how many weeks or how many days or how many months or trying to understand the association. We just need to know that it is a time of fixed duration, Okay, uh, and it's not it's not a short time like a day or a week, but it's also not forever. Mm -hmm. Okay, 
Um, and so that's and and there seems to be the suggestion that the Gentiles will trample the outer court. Now we see later that this outer court is the uh, city of Jerusalem. That there is a that there is a time. And so, by the way, if you were a Revelation scholar and you don't know whether to choose the early or late date, pick the late one because whatever you know, this is this is being written after the destruction of the temple and the walls. The nations have Jerusalem, Mm -hmm. but it extends through the time of the nations. Through Scripture, like um, in Romans 11, Paul talks about that 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 the there will be a hardening for Israel until the times of the of the Gentiles is complete. That there's a duration of time. And you just referred to the fact that uh, in AD 70. The yeah. temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was overtaken and destroyed. Right. Yeah. As was foretold in Zechariah 14, by the way. You know, it's not like God's like, oh, no, my house, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so John is saying, look, there's a time. And so he equates Jerusalem with the outer court. That there's this place where God is meeting with the nations, but it is a, you know, there's very much this kind of judgment a lot of a lot of violence and judgment and stuff like that's happening out there a lot of need for cleansing okay so it's not like the outer court's gone even though you know Jerusalem was destroyed but there is a that God is still dealing with humankind and not just in that place but that he's dealing with humankind outside of this temple where this angel is offering incense okay but the angel's not the only one in the temple area. There are these two witnesses. Okay. And the two witnesses, they are um, ministering in there. Um, it says that they are, it says, I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days, which is the same as 42 mm-hmm. months, clothed in sackcloth. Now, notice they are the two olive trees. That's from Zechariah 4. Um where Zechariah says that there are these two olive trees and they're the, the oil from the trees are feeding the lamp of God. And uh, Zechariah's like, what is this? And God says, neither by might nor by, what is it, by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Mm-hmm. And that's his answer. It's like, what does this mean? And then he says, but what are those olive trees? And he says, these are the two who are to bear witness, right? These are the two who are chosen. They're anointed, the anointed ones who are going to go and, and so whoever these are, whether they're individuals or whether they're representative, I tend to think that they are the Jew and the Gentile church, okay, uh, that they represent, you know, these two classifications of, of believers, of witnesses, and that these are ministering. But notice that they're ministering, that, they're, that they are the olive trees, they're the lampstands, they stand before the Lord of all the earth, so that they are in that second compartment too, or, you know, in that first compartment that where, remember we said that there's the, um, the altar of incense, there's the, um, lampstand, and then there's the table of showbread. Mm-hmm. Okay. On the outside is the Gentile world. Right. And the nations and on, and then, and then on this, in this, in this, uh, not innermost chamber, but in this, um, uh, first chamber, there's the church. Right. Right. And note, and, and think about it now, uh, before, when, uh, when God was over this theocracy, this kind of political kingdom, right? 
and they had the law, right? And, and everything functioned according to these elementary principles of the world. They functioned like the nations, even though it was aimed toward God. So um, there really is this kind of relationship with God. And we have to understand that we've got to keep politics and religion separate, right? <laughs> that there is this very clear distinction between what's happening in that courtyard and what's happening inside that. There's no blood in there except what was carried that one time a year. Inside there, it's a bloodless religion. Of, of the light from the Holy Spirit, according to Zechariah 4, right? Communion with Jesus, who is the presence, right? And, and access to God, who we can't see, but direct access to him through prayer. Okay, so in that, in that chamber, what is the name of this chamber, this first chamber? It's the holy place. The holy place. Mm-hmm. And we have the Spirit. Yeah. The presence, which is Jesus. Mm-hmm. We have access to God by prayer. We can't see him because he's in the innermost chamber. Right, right. Okay. He's still obscured from us. So the, the, the immediate presence of God is, as the Hebrew author would say, that that innermost chamber represents the immediate presence of God. Mm-hmm. Right. But, but we've been invited in. Now, we're in this compartment. The world's still going on, and God's still reigning over it outside. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. But again, this has a lot to do with the way we relate to the outside world, to the political realm, you know, that our relationship with God consists of this communion, this presence, this prayer. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> you know, that, that, that this, is, this is the wonderful joy of, of being called into this this really select group. You know, when, when Jesus died on the cross, he says it's finished. It says that the veil of the temple ripped in half. Which one was that? You know, a lot of times we think it was the veil between the um, holy place and the most holy place. But how could anyone testify to that? Because no one could see that veil. Right. Right. No, right, one, right. it wasn't like in full view. If, right. if that first veil was left intact, how could you know that the second one was gone? And, and here's my contention is, is that it's the first one. It's that it's the way into the holy place. The way to the holy of holies is still obscured because the very na- nature, the natural realm is the veil between us and it, you know. Okay. Um, and Jesus has gone through the veil, we can say, though. So he is our anchor. He is the connection, you know, like in the, uh, and I don't know how true it is, but I've always heard that the, um, high priest wore a rope around his ankle as he went in, just in case he had displeased God and was struck dead. No one could get his body out of there. Mm-hmm. You know, he couldn't go in. Mm-hmm. So they had to they had to have a rope to drag him. Mm-hmm. So when author of Hebrews says he's gone like an anchor into the holy place, you know, it's not that he's died, but that there's this rope, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that, that he's, that there's this, he's shown us the way into the holy of holies, you know, and that is through the flesh, that as long as we're in the flesh, we cannot cross over there, okay? Uh, so that's an aside. Now, when we get down to Revelation eleven nineteen, and another thing you need to know. So one thing I said about Revelation is there's two lobes. The first lobe is the first 11 chapters, and it is replete with Old Testament references. The second lobe is a Gentile-focused section. It opens with chapter 12, and there are no biblical references. There's only astrological, astronomical references. Hmm. Why is that? 
you think? Well, I mean, the Gentiles don't have the scriptures. Right. Yeah. And what Psalm 19, the heavens declare. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> right. How did the Magi find the, the newborn king? The, the stars. Yeah. Yeah. So let's not discount that. Right. Mm. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I can't read them. I don't know what's going on. But in, in a world where you didn't have all this light pollution and, and um, people were paying close attention to how these bodies were moving in the, in the sky, you know, uh, it's a great way for God to communicate with humankind especially because he put those stars there and, and all that. So um, at any rate, that's the second thing. So what I'm going to say is, is that uh, Revelation eleven nineteen is the end of Revelation book one. Okay. Okay. Should we read 19? Yeah. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. Mm-hmm. This sounds like the Holy of Holies is open. It is. Okay. Right. Because, right, and he's very specific. He names the furniture, right, the sea. That's a tab. That's a clue. Okay. Revelation 4, there was a sea. Revelation 8, the golden altar where incense is offered. Revelation 11, earlier up there, the lampstands, right? And now Revelation 19, there was seen the Ark of the Covenant. Okay. Now, we, now we're in the Holy of Holies. Right. So do you... We're moving through the temple. Yes. Do you see that the genius of this, that it's, that this isn't, I mean, so Revelation is, it, Revelation uh, chapters 1 through 19 are built on the number 7. And in over that space, there are 28 instances of 7. Okay. Do you think that mm-hmm. that's happenstance? No. Okay. Revelation... 20 and 21 are built on the number 12. What do 12 and 7 have in common? Uh, you tell us. Okay. <laughs> 7 is 3 plus 4, right? 3 is heaven, uh, yeah. 4 is earth. Heaven and earth are considered together, added together, 3 plus 4. Okay. Did you say 3 is heaven and 4 is earth? Right. Heaven is, is you know, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that, that the number 3 refers to that which is of heaven. Okay. And four refers four to Four refers to earth. There's four corners of, of the earth. You know, there's four elements in the old concept that earth is is a place of four. Okay. And that's mentioned throughout Revelation. You know, the, these angels are coming from the four corners, that there's these four beasts that represent the four mm-hmm. quadrants the yeah, yeah. of the heavens. So four is earth, three is heaven. Okay. Four plus three is seven, and that is what the uniting of heaven and earth, or it God's is. rule over right. heaven and earth. Right, they're considered together. The seven spirits of God are before His throne. Right, so God's spirit is aware heaven and earth. He is ruling over all of it. That's why the sea is like glass. Okay. Okay. Because God is ruling over heaven right. and earth. Right. But when we get to chapter twenty and twenty uh, through twenty-two, the number changes to twelve. To twelve, which is three times four. Boom. So that the product is greater than the sum right. of the parts. Because they had math then too. Right. Math, <laughs> math was then too. Right. And, and, and three times four is heaven and earth are now united. Now they were, God, they were under God's um, authority and power throughout the book. But they are very, very separate until the end of all things, until the very presence of God comes down out of the heaven to this city that is made without hands 
comes and now there's this celebration now now is the you know the kingdom come now is you know god has made his home with humans and there's no night because the light of of god of the lamb you know are are its light and so there's this unity this this and we've talked about this idea of one flesh so the city is the bride there is a marriage of heaven and earth mm-hmm and so seven, the number seven no longer dominates the book. The number 12 does. Hmm. Um, it used to be that God ruled over both heaven and earth. But right. now it's the case that heaven and earth have been united. Right. And there are really, there's really no distinction between the two. Right. Yes. And then we, could, we could go off on a tangent and talk about how this is the, actually the biblical vision of heaven, not some spiritual place, but right. a place that is the uniting of heaven and earth. Right, and it's it's back in Zechariah eight. I mean, there's just there's so much that God is is wanting to bring this together, and so this this temple is a depiction of God living among His people. Jerusalem, the the history of Israel, the you know the temple, the tabernacle, are are prefiguring the great scheme and the plan. Um, the Bible Project has a good video called Heaven and Earth that that talks about a lot of this. But what I really want to point out is, is that in the closing of the Hebrew book of, of end times, at 1119, we've reached the, the full end of this journey. Let's say you begin in the east and you walk through and into the courtyard. Now you see the altar, you see the sea, and then you pass on. And the next thing you're looking straight at is this golden altar of incense if you turn to your right you're going to see the um let me see as you're going right let's see you're going to see the showbread if you turn to your left you're going to see the the lampstand right these witnesses are the lampstands so that that the church i believe that the witnesses represent the jew and gentile church they are the they are the lampstand right just as Jesus appears among the lampstands, and each lampstand is a church, is a congregation. So we are the lampstands. We are the Jew and Gentile lampstands who are who are worshiping in the presence of God in the holy place by the Holy Spirit, who is the anointing oil on us. Okay, uh, to bring Zechariah four back to it, and and. This is our communion with God. It is that we are bearing witness to him by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are accessing him through intercessory prayer, and we are sharing in communion with him through his body, the church, which is the one loaf. Okay? So all of this is woven together. Now, where are we? Okay? We're in the holy place. Where are we not? The holy of holies. What's going to happen at the end of time? Right? The veil that is space-time rips open. Okay. And God's immediate presence is now exposed in a moment of, of complete and final judgment on this creation and the renewal of creation that there is this splitting of the veil between our reality that, you know, quote in air quotes, reality and real reality, base reality, God. Okay. Um, now, if that's the case, if we've been traveling from the altar, the brazen altar to the mercy seat through the book of Revelation. Is it possible that, that John is depicting um, a chronometer? Because remember, it's pointing east. What, what is the significance of east and west when it comes to time? 
the sun rises and the right. east and sets in the west. Yeah. So beginning of the day, end of the day, right. beginning of history, end of history. Yeah. So if you can imagine the sun as being a the hand on on a chronometer, right? And tick, 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 and it's starting way out there. Yeah. You know, it's starting in the courtyard, but now tick, 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 it's over. It's over the holy place, right? And and as it's moving, when it gets down toward evening, now it is over. It is directly, you know, it uh-huh. is pointing at the holy of holies. Uh-huh. Okay, so I, I would suggest that the reason this one of the reasons that this pattern is so important. Why did it have to face east? Why did it have to be a long rectangle? Why did there have to be space on either side, north and south of it? But not toward the back of it, because on the back end of it, on the west it's end, over. history is over. <laughs> it's That's over. The end of history. Yeah, right, yeah. right. But but at some point, the sun leaves. The, you know, is not directly over the courtyard. Now it's over because God's plan, His history, has brought people into the holy place, and there are some who are in the holy place, but there's still people in the courtyard. Right. Right. Okay, and so that that as as history's going on, still God's still ruling over there, and it's still crime and punishment. It's still you know uh, consequence and stuff like that that's happening outside. Inside, it's grace, it's presence, it's fellowship, and and that's where we are. And yet the the you know the sun keeps moving. That there is coming, and I think it's soon uh, a time when we hit that you know that that last hand so a lot of times we think of it as midnight right but if you were a hebrew it would be 6 to 6 p.m to 6 p.m the next day so i think we're at 559 not 1159 mm-hmm. okay um and and isn't that cool isn't that beautiful that you know really if we look at human history let's say that the all of human history before god calls israel and gives the sinai law is 6 p.m to 6 a.m Let's say God giving the Sinai law and the temple and everything is 6 a.m. Let's say Jesus dies at noon. Right? Yeah, we're in the last six hours. Right. All human history, the last six hours. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and so that's kind of stinking cool, you know. Um, maybe we could say he died at, uh, yeah, that's noon. Right? It's a great time to be alive. Well, it is. I mean, that is, right? When was he crucified? I guess noon and then three. Um, no, nine and then three is when he died. But anyway, yeah, hey, it's cool. I, I and I, I would think, hey, if you're a skeptic, that's fine. I do think you probably need to not bash on the Bible. I think as just as literature, it is, uh, it's crazy sophisticated. I can't think of anything that is so integrated over a period of let's just let's just be super um, liberal, I guess, in and say Ezra wrote the whole Old Testament. And so the whole the Old Testament never existed until about the sixth century or the fifth uh, century BC. Okay, let's just say that mm-hmm. uh, there was probably some prophets. Isaiah, we know Isaiah was around at least you know in the third century BC because of the Qumran scrolls. Daniel was probably around in the second century at least BC because of the Qumran scrolls. Okay, Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah. Yep. Right. So we know that those books were around a long time. Okay, um, and then we get over to Revelation. Here you have somebody who's obviously not super educated, um, and he's doing his best. <laughs> Just in that his he doesn't speak multiple languages in a time when anybody who had any education spoke at least their native tongue and Koine Greek. We know that this guy learned Koine Greek as an adult just because of the quality of his Greek, his limited vocabulary, his syntax. 
um, they all point to somebody who's not, this isn't his primary language and he's not overly fluent in it. Okay? Hebrew, Aramaic is his first language. Right, right. And so, but here's somebody who is, he's very, he's communicating very effectively to the Greek world, but somebody who is, who is just enmeshed and embedded in this Old Testament milieu who has at his command. Now, remember, he doesn't have the internet. He doesn't even have bound volumes of books. You know, he's had secondhand exposure to scrolls. Uh, he may not have even been literate, right? He may be giving dictation. He may, have only, he may only be dependent on having heard the scriptures at synagogue. So here's somebody who's woven together, you know, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Exodus, all of these books are woven, you know, Zechariah, woven together in this book of Revelation into a brand new work that is cohesive, but it's, it's also, also mathematically sophisticated. Um, and it takes us really spatially through time. I mean, hey, you know, give it props at least, you know? <laughs> right, as literature, right? if nothing else. Right. So I don't know what the walk away is, except that, hey, I, you know, God's big. He's in control. He knows what he's doing. Um, and he's told us. And the gospel was foretold in the original design of the tabernacle. Right. We see the principles of the Christian gospel in the Hebrew scriptures. Yes. Um, because Christ is, uh, there. there is this God of, there's this transcendent God that's holy and will judge sin. And sin has to be dealt with. And when sin is dealt with, we enter in. Yes. And we have communion and fellowship with him. Yes. We have an advocate. Yeah. We, uh, a lamb that was slain for us. We now are in fellowship with him and with one another. That's that holy place. And yeah. we're waiting for the day when we enter the most holy place. Right. And the Hebrew author would say, we're in that holy place. There's a rope coming out from under the curtain. Uh-huh. And we know who it's tied to. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he's already gone in with his own blood. Right. Yeah. It's a great time to be alive, people. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Hope you enjoyed this. If you got questions, email us at discussion at recoverfaith.org. Thanks. We'll see you next time.